0: Good morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is uh, appropriate on this day that uh, historically, uh, if we who are part of your church, by your grace, uh, remember this as uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday, and uh, the good news about H.J. and Angela welcoming Noel into the world just reminds us that You are a God who creates, and life is one of the gifts that you have given to us, that we are empowered to create life. Um, So we give you thanks for Noelle's safe arrival. We pray for her continued health and growth, and for Angela's health, and Father, for H.J. as well as a parent and love their daughter, that you would help them. Uh, Father, help us as well to to steward the grace that you have given to us. That as we uh, honor you, as we seek to pursue uh, our knowledge of you, that we would grow not only in that knowledge, but grow in our desire and ability to share this knowledge. Uh, It is good news that is meant to be shared, not kept to ourselves that the life of holiness that you have called us to is not one that requires or demands that we live in isolation, but one that live, demands we live in community in fellowship. And then, Father, uh, going out into the world to display the very light of Christ, the very holiness of Christ in all that we do. Uh, Father, we also acknowledge that outside of your power, outside of your empowerment, We can't do this. I can't preach without the help of your Holy Spirit. Father, we cannot listen to your word without the ministry of your Spirit. We cannot act at all uh, on what you have required of us without first having been made alive by your Holy Spirit, but now having been made alive, having been declared your children, adopted into your family so that we can call you Abba. Father, we ask for your continued help that we might grow more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus, that our dependency upon you would increase and our dependency upon ourselves and the things of this world would decrease more and more so that all that remains, all that can be seen, uh, is Christ. Father, we ask and pray this in Jesus' strong and precious name. Uh, I'm going to show uh, on the screen there something that you probably are familiar with if you have gone to a particular store uh, in the Paramus Mall. If it's on the screen, is it there? Yeah, see, here's a manual for this. And then if you know, you know, this is uh, Alex is a particular name for this. And then, of course, the next screen, it shows you what you need uh, to put this particular thing together. I won't show you the rest of the... uh, uh, you can actually go online and get the, all these manuals, but you know so that 's what you need to put that particular thing together. Um, and I, I show this because in reading through verses one to twelve of first uh, Peter, which we 've done the last two weeks, they form, if you will, by comparison, a, something similar to an instruction manual. Peter lays out for us in those verses. Everything that God has given to us um, in Christ, that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrected Christ, that he has given us an indestructible inheritance, he has given us the power of his protection, he has given us a durable faith that's more precious than gold. There are a couple of slides here, we can move on to those. He has also given us a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory, and he has given us the faith to believe uh, the gospel of our salvation. When we get into verse 13, right? if those are the indicatives, if those are the things that God has given to us, starting in verse 13, Peter begins the application of those things. These are now the tools, starting in verse 13, that God has given to us to help us live out the faith that he has called us to live. And the first of these tools that God gives to us is hope. And we're going to look at hope today. That'll be verses uh, 13 to 21. I, I, almost, I felt this sort of this, the air go out of the room when, you, when the, the scripture came out. I was like, oh, no, we're going to go to chapter 2. That's a lot of verses. No, we're just going to do 13 to 21. So we'll look at hope this week. The second tool is the truth or the gospel. And we'll look at that next week. That's verses uh, 22 to chapter 2, verse 3. And then in two weeks, we'll look at the third tool, which is the church. Uh, And that's uh, chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. So God has given us everything we need to follow Jesus. In other words, he's given us everything we need to maintain a faithfulness to Jesus. Faithfulness to Jesus simply flows out of faith in Jesus. Faith that relies on hope to help us fix our eyes on Christ as we follow him through this world as we make use of the things that god has given to us to help us stay faithful and true to jesus hope if you will that helps us to fix our eyes on jesus until we see him face to face that if you were to sort of put a, a even the more simple terms what peter is aiming for in the rest of his letter knowing that his readers are experiencing Alienation, isolation, and trouble in this world from neighbors and people who aren't followers of Christ, Peter is telling them, don't get discouraged, get determined. And let your determination to follow Christ flow out of your faith in Christ. Let your determination to follow Christ flow out of your hope in him. Hope, that Peter says, uh, inspires a holy lifestyle. Hope that instills a healthy fear of God. And that hope that draws its strength from the price of our redemption. So that's how we're going to take a look at these verses from 13 to 21. That hope helps us fix our eyes on Jesus until we see him face to face. That hope in and of itself inspires a holy lifestyle. That it instills in us a healthy fear of God and that it draws its strength from the price and the preciousness of our redemption. So let's look at the, the first one. So hope inspires a, a holy lifestyle. It's verses 13 to 16 where Peter uh, there says, you know, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. And then he goes on to talk about being obedient children. As far as Peter is concerned... Hope and faith are two sides of the same coin. Because hope, like faith, is about trusting God for the future. It's trusting God certainly in the present, but it's looking forward with a a large degree of confidence and certainty about what God has promised God will bring about. And so since hope and faith are effectively two sides of the same coin, Peter starts this section with this really strong exhortation. I'm going to change the word order a little bit in verse 13. I read it to you how the the ESV has translated, but another way of understanding and reading these verses is this. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ by preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. If you have an older translation of the Bible, or you may have grown up, you've heard this text preached before, you know that uh, that phrase, preparing your minds for action, is uh, literally translated, girding up the loins of your mind. Uh, The image borrowed from the, the first century, which Peter lived, where you had these, you know, men wore long garments, and in order to do heavy work, or to run, or to move quickly, they sort of tucked up their garment stuck it in their belt, and away they went. There's a sense in which of being prepared, um, of, of getting ready, or being ready. If, um, if our sister Vanessa was here, she would say, if you be ready, you don't have to get ready. And Peter is saying the same thing. We might say, in, in today's language, you roll up your sleeves, lace up your work boots, or... Uh, in a more colloquial way, put on your big boy pants, you got work to do. Right? Put on your big girl pants, get out there, and do what needs to be done. Peter says we need to be able to prepare ourselves, we need to set our hope on Jesus by preparing our minds for action, by being sober-minded, by having a clear mind about things. Because in order to set our hope on Christ, and we'll unpack that in just a moment, we need to be able to learn how to think in a new way and to dis- discipline ourselves into thinking a new way. That doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen overnight. That Just because you have set your hope and put your faith in Christ and have been born again through faith by the grace of God, it doesn't mean that you automatically now change the way that you think. It requires work to do that. It requires work to take every thought captive, every Anxious thought captive to Christ. Every fearful thought captive to obedience to Christ. That's what learning to be sober-minded is all about as well. It's, it's not panicking when things begin to turn against you. It's the ability to almost as if you will step out of yourself and observe the situation objectively and say, I know what's happening here and, and there's a temptation to, to get very anxious and fearful and react But to be sober-minded means I'm going to respond. When we lived in, we had just moved to North Dakota in the fall of 1988, in December of 88, celebrating our first Christmas. Uh, It was the day after, it was actually the day after Christmas. There was a snowstorm outside, as you would expect in North Dakota in December. And through uh, a series of events, our daughter, who at the time was just a year old, got her finger caught in the door. And so her little pinky finger was just hanging by a thread. It's a snowstorm. And so we're trying to console our daughter, and, and Jill is, you know, we got, a, we got an ice cube with our washcloth, and we're just trying to figure this out. And this, so suddenly, this clarity of mind, I just looked at Jill and said, We need to call Fred. He has a four wheel drive truck, he lives across the street. I'm not good in a crisis situation normally. But in that moment, God enabled me to be prepared for action and sober-minded. Because the easiest thing in the world would be to do is just to panic. So, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? It's a snowstorm. It's like, no, someone has a four-wheel drive truck. And we got her to Hazen Hospital. And our family physician, God bless him, met us there. Sewed that little digit back to its proper place. And for the next six weeks... Our 10-month-old daughter looked like a proper English girl because her, her pinky was always up in the air like that. There are situations that you're going to be brought into because of your faith in Christ. And we need to be prepared for the fact that people aren't always going to be kind to us, not just because they, they are unkind or may not be aware that we know Christ, but specifically because we know who Jesus is. Because we, they know that we go to church or are religious. So we need to be prepared. We should not be surprised at that. So going into situations, whether at work, and I know some of us have had situations, you know, going home for holidays or entertaining family over holidays. It's like, it's wonderful to see this, these are, this is my family, but oh, I know what to expect. What do you do? You prepare yourself for that. You read the word. You pray. You gird up the loins of your mind. You steel yourself to say, no matter what, I'm going to love. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to put on all of the things that Paul says I need to from Colossians. I'm going to be tender-hearted. I'm going to be forgiving. I'm going to, as as much as it depends on me and the help of the Holy Spirit, to be Christ-like here. Peter is asking for that and commanding that kind of, of preparation and that kind of mentality. Sober-minded people, at the same time, now that's dealing with others. Personally speaking, sober-minded people are not glued to their smartphone. They don't spend hours, if you have ever done this, you know the futility of this, you don't spend hours online arguing with an anonymous person about this or that. That's not a sober minded action. They're not easily distracted either because their eyes and their hope are fixed on Christ. Think again of who it is who's writing this. Peter's in the boat with the other apostles. It's night, the wind is up, the waves are lapping and smashing against the boat. The clouds are dark and threatening. And who do they see walking on the water but Jesus? Peter, because he's Peter, bravely stands up and says, Lord, if it's you, command me to step out of the boat and come toward you and I will. Jesus says, it is I come. What does Peter do? He steps out and he starts walking to Christ. Looking, looking directly at him. But somewhere along the way, lest I fall off the stage, somewhere along the way, Peter looks at the waves. And he begins to go down. He knows from experience the danger and the risk of taking your eyes off Christ and looking at your circumstances. He knows what happens when you begin to worry more about your job than your relationship with Christ. He knows what happens when you begin to idolize your children's happiness at the expense of Christ's relationship with you. He knows what it it means to sort of lose focus because the things of this world become very enticing and very interesting. It's like the uh, some of you who are Seinfeld fans remember the, the episode with the white sweater that had the red dot. There's this pristine white sweater that they're exchanging among themselves but there's a slight imperfection. You can't see it, but they can. And Peter says what happens is we tend to focus on the dot, and we miss the bigger picture. If we take our eyes off Christ, we find ourselves sinking. At times even sinking down to the very level of the people that we are called to witness to. This is why he will then say, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He's quoting there from the book of Leviticus. What Peter says here is is very similar to what Paul says in Romans 12.2. Working off the phrase, do not be conformed. Because Paul says, don't be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? Why? Why is it important that our minds be transformed and we not be conformed to this world? Paul says, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. So it is possible, says Paul, feeding off Peter, to know what is the will of God by fixing your hope on Christ, your hope, your confidence, your trust, the fullness of everything you are. So if you want to have a stronger marriage, Focus less on improving, let's say, circumstances. Focus on improving your relationship with Christ. Focus on developing that and the rest will follow. It's really what Jesus says at the end of Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. If you seek first his kingdom, all those other things will be added to you. So you want things to go better at work because circumstances are rotten? You can't change those circumstances, but you can change your heart, you can change your mind, because the Spirit of God resides in you, and He's calling you, fix your hope on Him. And it doesn't matter what are the surrounding circumstances, as difficult or as challenging as they may be. We are called to be holy, says Peter, by refusing to be conformed to the passions and desires of our old way of life. So that means you don't enter into the, the gossip that's going on. You don't begin to sort of build resentment or anger or lust or envy. These are things that distract and pull us away. But to fix our hope, to just sort of to nail it, is absolutely essential. And part, of, I mean, think about it. You know, we're all just recovering sinners. <laughs> We're all in some ways getting over one addiction after another in our pursuit of following Christ. And he knows that. That's why part of our recovery is confession of sin and the assurance of pardon. Because we're going to fall. So the confession of sin that we make is a, is a function of fixing our eyes on Christ. Because if we had no hope of grace at the end of our lives, there's no reason... To confess our sins now because there's no hope for forgiveness. But because our forgiveness is guaranteed, even when we stumble, there is grace and forgiveness for that as well. There was a time when we could plead ignorance of the ways of God, there was a time when we could plead that we didn't know who God is and what God requires of us. But Peter says, no longer. We've been caused to be born again to a living hope in a resurrected Savior. And so following Jesus means this active daily repentance. Saying yes to Jesus and no to an old way of thinking, to old patterns of behavior. Even old ways of thinking about God. And even patterns of behavior that we thought, well, if I can continue doing this, then God will tell me that he, he, show me that he loves me. He's loved you from the foundation of the world. Nothing's going to change that. In some ways, nothing you can do is going to make God love you more. And nothing that you don't do is going to make him love you any less. You got the A, so just live. You've got salvation, so just be what God has made you. Created, recreated, if you will, born again in the image of Christ to serve him, to glorify him. That's what it means to be called. He called you. Why did he call you? Not that he could beat you down, but that he could instill into you and inspire you with his Holy Spirit to live the life that you were meant to live through obedience to Jesus. And it's interesting, too, that Peter says, be holy for he who called you is holy. Every religion outside of Christianity tells you, this is what you have to do, and you'll be holy. Follow these rules, you'll be holy. Develop these mental abilities, you'll be holy. Do these physical things, and you will be on the path to holiness. Christianity is the only religion where God says, I pronounce you holy by the blood of Christ, now be. I don't have to be a husband to my wife. I am a husband. Why? Because on a certain day, I made a pledge and a promise and a covenant before God and witnesses. So now I just simply have to be a husband. You don't have to be an employee if you've been hired to do the job. You just do the job. The same thing in terms of being holy in Christ. You're holy. So just live like it. And God has given you the tools to do that. And one of those tools is hope. And remember too that God, God commands, what God commands, God provides. Because you say, oh, I can't be holy. I, I, I look at this person, look at that person, I look at the Bible as no. What God commands, He provides. And what God provides, He then commands. He made us holy to be holy. And having made us holy, he then commands us to be holy. To live lives set apart. To live lives that are sanctified. To live lives that reflect that holiness. We don't become holy by doing good works. Or by a religious obedience to a code of ethics. Or by any moral part of our own. The the world outside the church, that's what it's all about. If we could just... If we could just change the environment in which we people live, right? by osmosis, a better environment, a better living situation, a better job will improve the person's heart and so make them so grateful and so good. The Bible says, no, no, no. It's not what's outside that corrupts us. It's what's in us that corrupts us. A heart that is tainted, and clouded, and shrouded, and poisoned by sin. And the only way that change happens in the outside world is if change happens within us by a work of God's grace through the Holy Spirit, through the hearing of the gospel, that the poison is removed, the heart is taken out, and a new heart is given to us. A heart that is holy and good and righteous because it is given to us by an act of grace through faith. We are made holy by an act of Of God's grace. And when He makes us holy, He gives us the power to be holy. And being holy simply means being faithful to Jesus by trusting Him as Savior and obeying Him as Lord. And Jesus Himself said it if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And the power to keep His commands comes from the Holy Spirit, whom Is given to us so that we might have our eyes and our heart open to the power of the gospel. It's good to try and follow Christ, but understand that in your trying, it is Christ who empowers that and not you yourself. That's what Paul means when he says this by grace you've been saved, and this not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Hope inspires a, a holy lifestyle. Once again, God made us holy, to be holy. And it means separating ourselves from the passions of our former ignorance. So if we are given to become angry when we are annoyed or aggravated, we have to repent of that sin by learning how to deal with that anger in a way that honors Christ. If we are given to getting anxious, and what's really being anxious is saying, God is not in control of this situation. So by me being anxious, I will wrest control from his hands and I will do better. Really? Or is it better at that point to say, I am anxious, but God has commanded me not to be anxious. So if God has commanded me not to be anxious and God has brought me into this situation, then the thing he is that making me anxious is something I should give to him to help me walk through. That's acknowledging his control. That's acknowledging his authority. That's acknowledging his sovereignty. That's acknowledging he has brought you into this situation not to destroy you but to make you better. To purify your faith. To strengthen your trust and hope. It's what Peter talks about at the end of this section in verses 22 and 23. Having purified your souls. Remember, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Just cling to that. The living and abiding word of God. Nothing you do if you have been caused to be born again by the grace of God. His word abides in you. Nothing and no one can pull that out of you. And can separate you from him because of that, says Peter. I won't read the text, but Paul says the very same thing in, in Colossians 3, 12-16. It will be on the screen. You can look at it. It's part of what it means to let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Allowing that, that growth to take place. And, and sometimes the, 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 the times we grow best is when our faith is put to the test. God has called us to live holy lives that are pleasing to him. Because he is holy and good and he is our heavenly father. I'm going to just share a a personal reflection at this point. Because, well, it's been a tough couple of months, folks. And um, as you can see, you know, just in our family, things have not gone as we had hoped in terms of uh, just life with illness and other things. And I was asking myself a series of questions. Maybe you've asked yourself these questions when things don't go the way that you think they should go. Why do I get to sense that I'm wrong and everyone else is perfect? Why do I get to sense that everyone else has it right while I keep getting it wrong? It's as though I'm the last one to realize that the joke is on me and I am the fool. If I am a fool, then what am I to do? How may I? How can I repent? How can I change? I have to confess my idolatry, I suppose. I have to confess my stubbornness. I have to confess that I'm a sinner. But now what? The now what comes from 1 Peter 1.13. Prepare your mind for action. Be ready. Keep sober in spirit or be sober-minded. Focus. Discipline the mind. Stay alert. Kill the chatter. Keep calm and press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Remember Matthew 14, 22 to 36, Peter walking on the water toward Jesus. Keep walking toward Jesus. It's interesting that when Jesus reaches down to catch Peter and to lift him up, he says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And I've often struggled with that in terms of what was going on there. And it was like, If if Peter was close enough that Jesus could reach out and lift him out of the water when he was drowning, why didn't he make it all the way? Prepare. Take the time necessary to get ready. Don't be impetuous. Plan and prepare. Be sober-minded. Don't panic. Trust God and trust Christ. We talked about that last week in John 14. You believe in God, believe also. Maybe don't let your heart be troubled. Fix your hope, fix your confidence in Christ. And how do we do this? How do we prepare to follow Him? You read His Word. You pray. You learn to keep in step with the Spirit. Because it's the Spirit who will keep you sober-minded. You learn to love the fellowship that Christ has provided to help you stay focused, to stay sober-minded, to live that holy lifestyle, a lifestyle that God has empowered us to live through trust in Christ. Because He is a God, not only who is our Father, says Peter, but He is a Father who judges justly, who judges impartially the quality of our holiness And the works that flow out of it. Because that's what it means when we say hope instills a healthy fear of God. Peter says in verse 17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This is a struggle for us at times. The command here flows out of the fact that there is a day when we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive what is due or what is done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul says this in Romans 6, that are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not, he says. How can we who die to sin live in it? But wait a minute, you say. This thing about our works being judged by God, aren't we born again? Aren't we, didn't Christ die for our sins? Aren't we uh, saved by grace through faith? Aren't our transgressions separated as far as the east is from the west? And that's all true. But salvation by grace doesn't mean we get to continue in sin. And I don't mean big sins, I mean the little ones, the things you mutter under your breath the thoughts you have that you keep to yourself, but if you were to act upon them, you'd end up in prison. Those are the things that we are to be on guard against just as much as the big sins of falling away from the faith or of committing adultery, of looking at pornography, or of falling into lust, or of falling into an addictive habit. There are these things that God requires of us as we pursue Christ there's an old saying that we're saved by grace through faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. Faith would be the the root works of the fruit. God is going to judge us according to how well we have used the gift that we have received from him through holiness and trusting in Christ. No one likes to talk about the judgment of God or the fear of God, because when we think about the fear of God, in the Old Testament, the fear of God dealt with three things. Terror, usually wrath from God's judgment, respect, or worship in reverence. And it's the last two, I think, that Peter has in mind, although the first one is not too far off. We hear about the fear of the Lord, and we think about Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Or Proverbs nine ten: The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. There are other Proverbs that talk about the fear of the Lord, and these have to do, I think, specifically with what Peter's talking about. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, Proverbs 14, 27 says, that one may turn away from the snares of death. Proverbs 16:6 6 says, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Let me give you a humorous illustration because this is heavy. Whenever Jill goes uh, uh, away to, let's say, spend time with our daughter or we're separated and she's, you know, with family and and I know she's coming back, do do you know what I do before she comes back? What would any good husband do knowing his wife's been away and is coming back? You clean the house, (laughs) Right? And if you can't do it yourself, you hire a cleaning agency. You go after that bathroom as if your life depended on it because somehow it does, <laughs> right? That toilet is clean. And not just a seat, all around it is clean, right? All of the scum in the bathroom mirror, all of the stuff on the shower, that's all pr- crystal clear, right? <laughs> that's right, I'll give you my rate if you're interested. why am I more fearful of my wife's judgment than of God's? Why do I excuse the little sins that would nip away at my faith? But I'm more concerned about what what my wife thinks about me in terms of whether or not I've kept the house clean in her absence. We can excuse some things, but Peter says, don't do that. And it has to do with the fact that not only will our works be judged, but it's, the, it's also attached strongly to the preciousness of our redemption. So that the hope that we have draws its strength from the fact that we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. That God just didn't do it by fiat. He didn't just simply say, as he created the world, let there be light. He didn't simply say, let you be forgiven. No, that's not how it works. His Son came into our flesh. Silver and gold can't buy you forgiveness. They may at times calm your conscience. But in the end, forgiveness is not earned. It can't be bought. Money is impersonal. It's cold. It doesn't love you. I remember that when we, you know, years ago just buying a car and and we had to trade in our old car. And I really liked that old car. It was a dependable car, but it was just, it had miles on it. And I remember the guy that we were dealing with said, he said, Mr. Malanga, let me just tell you, don't love a car. It doesn't love you back. It'll just cost you more and more money. Don't love money because it doesn't love you back. In fact, it demands everything from you and comparatively gives nothing in return. But we are seduced into thinking that if we can just buy this, I can be happy. If I can just anesthetize my guilt or anesthetize my depression or anesthetize my fear by buying something or spending it on something, that's going to do it. But Peter says, don't do that because that's an insult to the preciousness with which your redemption has been purchased. The blood of Christ, of God's own Son, is the thing that purchased our redemption. Don't undervalue it in any way, shape, or form. Peter lays out three tools for us to follow Christ hope, the gospel, and the church. And in the text that we studied this morning as we just wrapped this up, there are three commands that dominate this text. Set your hope on Jesus in verse 13. Be holy in verse 15. And live in godly fear in verse 17. Because those are the components of a holy life. Hope, a lifestyle that imitates Christ... And a fear, a godly fear, a holy fear of not disappointing the one who has given everything to live in relationship with us. To have us maintain faithfulness in His Son because faithfulness flows out of faith in Christ. And if we are to build a holy life in Christ, there will always, always, always be some assembly required. But thankfully God has given us everything we need to build that life, starting with a hope that inspires a holy lifestyle, that instills a healthy fear of God, and one that draws his strength from the price that's paid for our redemption. You think about that. Let's pray. Father, I'm reminded of the the psalm that says, Whom have I in heaven but you, and except for you, there is nothing on earth I desire. Oh, may that be true of us, because we are so easily enticed, so easily tempted to put our hope and trust in other things besides our living Savior. We thank you that you've given us a living hope, a firm hope, a sure hope, Help us, Lord God, to live out that hope through trust in Christ, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.